Welcome to FO Podcasts. Those of you who are tuning into this episode of FO Podcasts should know that my guest is Antoine von Achtmeil. Antoine is an investor, he's a philanthropist, he's an author, he's a Dutchman um, who is also an American, a truly uh, cosmopolitan individual, a transatlanticist in many ways, and a man who coined the term emerging markets. So without further ado, We've talked a bit about the places in the U.S. that'll do well, some sectors of the economy and some industries that are green shoots for the future. Uh, let's uh, talk about Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, Europe um, has places that are extremely productive and innovative. Yeah. And then Europe has countries with huge debts, aging populations, and... Um, a struggling democracy. Populism is coming back to Europe yeah. with a vengeance. It's not just the US that has the Trump phenomenon. Absolutely. Italy has Giorgia Meloni. Sweden, clinically. Mm -hmm. You basically see that some 20% of the population of the voters don't really believe or don't really care that much about democracy. You can call them fascists, but that, those are just. We, we'll get they, into that later, but let's yeah. yeah, let's focus on yeah. the European economies. So, in Europe, what will be the centers of growth? What do you see as the future of the EU economy and, in fact, the euro? Well, if we start with the euro. The euro has recently taken a beating. Mm -hmm. I don't think that will continue forever. Mm -hmm. uh, will it, let's say, be a problem for Europe over the coming two years? Yes, because. Mm -hmm the decline in growth in Europe, in part because of the war in Ukraine. Yeah. Very uh, high energy costs for them, very high inflation as city, a result. Exactly. And uh, high interest rates that follow inflation. Europe has, if you look at this from an American perspective, what we have, but on steroids. <laughs> and It's America on steroids when it comes to the inflation problem. Inflation and growth. And growth. Lack of growth. Yeah. yeah. So... That will be a problem for Europe. On the other hand, it will accelerate some of the things that will make Europe more competitive in 5 to 20 years. They will bring in painful structural reforms. Exactly. Okay. And that's what Germany did some years ago. Yeah, the hearts one and hearts two. Exactly. Yeah. And, and the fact that... If I remember correctly. Germany and the rest of Europe, Germany in particular, now has to recognize mm. that it cannot continue to be dependent on Russian gas and oil. That it has to do something different. Yeah. But, but hang on a minute. So let me ask you a question there, because mm -hmm. German industry is suffering. The former Irish Prime Minister, John Bruton, who's one of our advisors, uh, wrote a major article for us about how this winter would be tough and the two manufacturing areas of Europe, Northern Italy and Germany will suffer the most because the energy costs have spiked. So can Germany make that transition? Can its Mittelstand, the small and medium-sized enterprises that have powered their growth survive this? The answer I would have to that is yes. Yes. They'll muddle through. They'll muddle through. They have enough of... The foundation is strong enough to make that possible. Even in Northern Italy, it's strong enough. All right. But certainly in Germany, I believe it's strong enough. That doesn't mean it will be fun. 
but all of that is on the assumption that we won't see the use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine. If that happens, then All bets the picture are off. changes. All right. Yes. Now, let me uh, get to uh, a question. And I don't think that will happen, by yeah. the way. But All right. We don't Good. Know let's, let's be optimistic there. <laughs> yeah. uh, but let's get to another question that often crops up amongst economists and political economists and politicians. And uh, my English friends, some of whom... I met in a recent trip to London, we're talking about Brexit and from Brexit, talk occurred about problems within the EU. Well, some of them, most of them were obviously against Brexit. Uh, but they said that after Brexit, the risks to the EU of splitting have increased, particularly with the euro not being an optimal currency, the eurozone not being an optimal currency area. Ultimately, the decision to have one single currency was a political one. And there's very little in common between Spain and, say, um, Denmark. I believe you hear that more in Britain. <laughs> than in Berlin. Than in Berlin. <laughs> or in Amsterdam. Or in Madrid. Yes, you hear or that more in... Or even in Rome. Or in Paris. Or in any of the smaller cities, because there's a difference between uh, the capitals and, and, and the major cities. You do hear noises mm -hmm. about this in places like Czechia. Yeah, in but Italy, Hungary. hang on a minute. In Italy, uh, I've heard Giorgia Meloni's speeches. She rails against Brussels, as do, as do many of the Greeks as well. They rail against the ECB. And the big question, if you have, say, debts of 130% of your GDP, probably higher now, uh, if you're Italy, and you have a $2.3 trillion economy, is who bails you out? Uh, ultimately, this debt, let's be honest, cannot be repaid. The Greek debts can't be repaid. The Italian debts can't be repaid. The Spanish and Portuguese debts probably can't be repaid. Uh, eventually, creditors will have to take a haircut. Yeah. It's an issue of financial engineering rather than a question of uh, uh, upper under, in my view. Uh -huh. And I think the financial engineering talent is there in Europe and around the world mm -hmm. to, quote unquote, fix this problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and you think Europe will is, hold? Do you think Europe will hold? That Europe, except perhaps at the very margins, mm -hmm. um, that Europe will hold. And the euro will bounce back after a couple of years. Yes. Brilliant. So that's an optimistic take on Europe. That's right. Brilliant. Demography, do you think Europe will be able to counter demography? Uh, it, it, demography is worse in Europe than mm. in the US. Uh, although that's an issue that can be solved very easily by having a little more immigration. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the but, way the United States has solved it in the past. But, but you, you yeah, do know uh, Meloni and others have been giving know, lots of wonderful I'm speeches. Saying, I'm, I'm just saying <laughs> it could be solved relatively easily. And uh, it will probably be one of the 
ways they will address this problem. Yeah, but just a quick question. I realize this is out of the box thinking. Yeah, no, no, no. It, 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 this is an argument I've heard many economists make and, and, and uh, many of my friends make in different European capitals. Uh, but there's a counter to that, which other friends also in mm. Europe make that you could have immigrants come and often they end up being low skilled in France. They live in banlieues. Um, they end up being a net negative sometimes instead of a net benefit because they are not skilled enough, educated enough and productive enough to contribute to the modern economy. So that is also an argument to be taken into consideration. We cannot dismiss it offhand. Yeah, I, I, there are two problems with immigration besides all the benefits. Yes. One is that initially it means that productivity is threatened because of these lower skills. But that's usually a one-generation problem. Transitory. Transitory. Mm -hmm. Well, transitory, not one or two years, but transitory Understood. in terms of a generation, say, a generation, 10, 15 years. Um, the other is a very different issue that nobody has really found a real solution to, and that is the cultural side of this. Mm -hmm. uh, Europe, whether it's Italy or Holland for that matter, uh, have been countries that were very homogeneous. Yeah. And when you lose that homogeneity, it is a threat to society. It is a threat to a vibrant civic society yes. in some ways. It is an advantage because it brings in new blood, as it were, but it's also a potential threat. I haven't seen any good thinking about this. Hmm of how to deal with this issue. Mm. It's something that uh, is worth a Nobel Prize. Mm. If they could come up with some really creative and innovative solutions to this issue that they need to have uh, solutions for. What is clear is that particularly in an age where climate change is going to be more of a factor, uh, where we have now seen wars yeah. uh, near uh, in uh, Europe and near Europe, Syria, for example, that if you have that, then you cannot have open borders. Mm. At the same time, you cannot have completely closed borders. borders. Yeah. Where to draw that line is an ideological and a practical problem that we mm -hmm. haven't resolved. We haven't resolved it in Europe, and we haven't resolved it in in the United States. We haven't resolved that in India or South Africa or, either, yeah, anywhere or, in the world. I, I'm just thinking of those two. Yeah, but absolutely yeah, bang yeah. on, because we know from the UN website and all statistics that the number of migrants slash refugees is at a record high, uh, at least since World War II. Yeah. And that is only going to increase as drought as floods, Absolutely. as the natural disasters, as submerging of uh, coastal areas increases. So uh, you're right, there is no thinking. And the point you made about uh, the social cohesion suffering when you have an influx of new people, that is a very valid one because 
part of the reason some people point out you don't have that social cohesion and that welfare state you have in the US as you do in Europe is because it's so diverse. What does an immigrant who's a descendant of, say, people on the Mayflower have in common with, say, the Chinese immigrant who came to California in the 19th century? And what does that person have in common with the descendant of slaves in, say, Mississippi? Yeah, my answer, of course, to that is more than they think. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm an immigrant myself. <laughs> so, so am I. <laughs> but, 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 but what I'm saying is that uh, you have a challenge in raising taxation here. You have a challenge in providing services because people want to have control over their money and want to have control over their resources. So when you get diversity, you get dynamism, but there's also a threat of social cohesion. The number of dysfunctional cities in the U.S. is higher than, say, in the Netherlands. Yes, but... I'm not sure how much that has to do with immigration. I think that's just one. That is inequality, actually. That is probably inequality. Yeah. I, I, fair enough. So we've covered Europe. Let's move to emerging markets in which you invested. You've traveled around the world. And your first book was all about the growth in emerging markets and how these markets would drive global growth. And you were right. Uh, well, what my, do you my first book was really about how the center of gravity of the global economy was shifting back again to the emerging world, world and that was mostly Asian. Yeah. I'm saying shifting back because, of course, before the Industrial Revolution, China was the largest and in some ways the most advanced and in yeah. some ways quite prosperous economy in the world, followed by India. Yeah, I mean, China and India were over around 50% of the world yeah. GDP until the British showed up. And then suddenly uh, you had a situation where, uh, you know, fast forward to 1916, the American century, as it were, began because then the American yes. economy became bigger than the economy of the British Empire. Yeah. Although we should remember that it was not really until, let's say, 1956 that that dominance, which of course gradually grew, became very, very evident. You're referring to the Suez crisis. Yeah. The yeah. Suez crisis broke the back of right. the Brits. And the pound. And the pound, and pound. exactly. Yeah. The Americans pulled the plug on the pound and Once the British lose, had to withdraw. Yeah. Once you lose uh, your reserve currency status, mm. things become more difficult. Absolutely. And that's something we should remember here as well. Yeah, there's a concept in economics called seniorage, which you probably remember yeah. from your days yeah. as well, because yeah. it comes from a very simple idea that if you're lord of the manor and if you debts, you can always print money away because you're printing the money. But if you overdo it, then one day your money will be worth not much. And then suddenly you realize that you're no longer the senior. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. So now let's um, get to emerging markets. And you said the center of gravity was moving east. And I heard you in great detail with Ian Bremer on PBS, I believe. And you talked about um, how China, for all its problems, debt, zero COVID, more um, thought control, repression under Xi Jinping, single party or single man rule now, 
a change in globalization itself, which you've referred to, will still grow because now China has three things. Number one, fair degree of technological advancement. Number two, they have the managerial expertise to wriggle out of tight situations. That they have developed faster than anyone expected. Exactly. And, yeah. And three, uh, as a culture, as a civilization, as an economy, they have the will. As you said, they have the mindset. Talk plus, us through. Plus, yeah. one more thing. Whereas we have creativity that comes from freedom of thought. Hmm. They have a level of discipline that comes, frankly, from not having so much hmm. freedom of thought. It's a balance, and you mean. Discipline can be a driver of growth, just as creativity can be a driver of growth. And we shouldn't, as we have a tendency to do, poo-poo that particular side. I mean, if we see that Chinese kids do better at test scores than American kids often, mm. uh, then that means that discipline, at least for certain things, wins out over freedom of thought. Mm. And we shouldn't poo-poo that. That mm. doesn't mean it's the answer. For everything. For everything. But, mm -hmm. but it is a factor that we shouldn't uh, disqualify. All right. Brilliant. So where do you see China over the next two years and beyond? especially after the enthronement of Emperor Xi Jinping? I see China continuing to grow at a higher pace than the U.S., although at a much lower pace than it has before. You mean since so, 1978, because they but, had a disastrous but, economy till 78. Yeah, we, we, we forget... <laughs> We forget that the great catch up forward, yeah, yeah. No, the, the cultural they revolution. Down. They went down. Yeah. <laughs> so they had a lot of catch up. Yeah. But it gave them, let's say, 20 years of 8% growth. Now, mm -hmm. that, that 20% year of 8% growth is over. And it's not over because of Xi Jinping, <laughs> it's over for many other reasons. Yeah. They less room to catch up. Right. And right. They, they are now in the middle income trap and uh, they're in the middle income group but it's a middle income trap remains to be seen okay i stand corrected uh, they are in the middle income group and now they'll have to change their economic policies they'll probably have to consume more at home they just cannot continue to be the workshop of the world and they want to that seems have to be to, the case and they want to but they have problems. Yeah. Debt, corporate debt, real estate bubble, uh, rising labor costs, and slowing demand from the West for Chinese goods. As you just said, manufacturing is coming back, which means a lot of these factories and the coasts of China will have less to do, if not nothing to do. Yeah. We should start with saying, who doesn't have problems? <laughs> <laughs> they may be different problems, but we all have problems. And because it's easy to talk about other people's problems and forgetting about your own problems. No, no, but we did touch upon American problems right. and European problems. Yeah. We are not doing selective right, uh, right. examination of problems they're, they're here. Problems on, there are different problems yes. on, on both sides. And, and so China also is, has a demography problem, like Europe, like yeah, Japan. And we get to Japan. It's yeah. a serious demography yeah. problem. 
although it may not be quite as bad as some people forecast because uh-huh. the one-child policy has now been abandoned and that while it didn't bring an immediate change over time, it will probably bend things a little bit. So uh-huh. I'm perhaps a little less pessimistic about the demography problem than, than other people are. And you have to remember that Europe has done pretty well despite a serious demography-free problem. So it's, it's possible to grow. But it, it, it's just not going to grow at the kind of speed that it has been growing yes. at. And that wouldn't have happened anyway. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's get to China again. How serious is the debt issue? How serious is the real estate bubble? And can they avoid a financial crisis or a slowdown or a setback? forever because all economies have not grown consistently the graph in aggregate has up has been up but it's actually spiky you go through a crisis you go through a recession you go through a downturn then you move up and china has avoided that but cannot avoid forever here i'm giving you a two-handed answer Mm -hmm. on the one hand what concerns me is that china is the only major world economy that has not gone through a truly serious economic crisis or financial crisis. They've gone through an economic crisis mm-hmm. after the Great Leap Forward and so yeah. uh, But they haven't gone through a real big financial crisis. And uh, that should always be a concern. It's almost as if they are defying the laws of gravity. So far, yes. Mm. Having said that, the other side is that their debt problems on an economic basis are not all that serious. Their debt is not all that high. It's high in certain sectors. Understood. And it's especially high in some of the unregulated sectors. Mm. My sense is that the Chinese authorities are not stupid. And they are aware of these issues and that they have some of the means to deal with these issues. Going back to the managerial competence point. Exactly. Mm. They have learned to deal with some of these issues. So Mm. where that will come out, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Could we have a crisis in in China? Absolutely, we could. Do Mm. I forecast a, a crisis in China? No. Okay. Now, let's, since we are talking about China, let's touch upon recent U.S. policies. The U.S. has cut out China from advanced chip, advanced semiconductor chips. Not, I don't mean potato chips, of course. And uh, it has cut China out of the development of the technology. It has put a spoke in the wheel in China's ability to manufacture such semiconductor chips. In the words of Glenn Carl, the retired CIA officer with whom I record a podcast as well. He said it's like the U.S. cutting off Japan from oil and the U.S.-China Cold War. Whatever Xi and Biden, Xi Jinping and Joe Biden may say is well and truly on your comments. It's not like cutting China off of oil. Mm-hmm. In fact, they're getting oil more easily now than before. Well, speaking uh, of oil, they are getting it at a discount right, uh, right. from Russia, as is so, India. So... But is it a serious challenge? Absolutely. China is very good in certain technological areas. Mm. Nuclear fusion, I Nuclear just learned. Nuclear fusion is, is, yeah. is one of them. 
clearly artificial intelligence. Mm. Is Facial a, recognition. Is well, that's part of our yeah. uh, uh, AI. Yeah. Uh, 5G, the five, fifth generation. Huawei. Yeah. Very good at But there are other areas where they're not good at all. Mm. And, and semiconductors, they're really not first rate. Mm-hmm. They're not bad, but they're not first That's rate. Right. They're not like they're not their at neighbor. The edge of technology. Yeah. They're not yeah. like their neighbor, but, Taiwan. Yeah. Aircraft, military and civilian, behind. Vaccines, behind. Yeah. On the other hand, stem cells research, top the bar. Uh, so it's a it's a it's a variable it's a mixed, bag. It's, it's a, a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag. And there's no question that just as depriving Germany of gas hurts Germany now, but will lead to developments that will help Germany later, hmm. depriving China of the edgy research in semiconductors and machinery in, in semiconductors will hurt China long term. But I'm afraid we should be very careful here because it hurt short term or long term? Short term. Short term. Okay. Yeah. I wanted it, to get that right. Yeah. 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 No, it will hurt it for the next two, three, four, five years. Mm-hmm. But eventually it will focus them. And let's face it, the Chinese are quite nationalistic. There we get to the will point, right, and the discipline point exactly. as well. The fourth point that, you brought in. That means that that it will lead to a faster internal development of all of this, mm-hmm. and that's something that we have to be thinking about, cognizant of. So let's, um, when you, we are speaking about this, let's uh, talk a bit about something you mentioned when we had lunch. You said that a lot of these estimations that will take X number of years to do Y are fundamentally bookish or too conventional or or simply misplaced because when a crisis focuses human minds, things change. change And they can change dramatically fast. I will never forget being in a class of Richard Cooper, the economist Mm. at Yale, where he talked, and I knew nothing about this at the time, where he talked, this is when I was a graduate student, so we're talking 50 years ago, mm. um, where he talked about how fast the U.S. economy had adapted to a war economy during World War II, how within a very short time we were making uh, ships you know, within six weeks mm. uh, that took several years to build. Mm-hmm. I've never forgotten that. Mm-hmm. And I've seen that in so many places. Mm. When your back is against the wall, certainly things, we've seen it with the Ukrainians recently, <laughs> when your back is against the wall, certain, suddenly you have an energy that you would have never held for possible. Mm-hmm. And I believe we may see that. And we'll see that in the case of China, Europe, the US all over. Right. Okay. Right. So we've touched upon China, and if we are talking about China, we have to talk about two things. Uh, one, of course, is Xi Jinping and his complete control of the economy, which and society and politics and, and, and the risks it brings. And two, the elephant in the room, Taiwan. How do you uh, evaluate both risks? What Xi Jinping has done is basically achieved 
the pinnacle of personal power in a way no one has done, certainly since Deng Xiaoping and probably since Mao. I would say he's gone beyond Deng Xiaoping because Deng well, Xiaoping's thought yeah, yeah, right. was never enshrined you, in the you, constitution. Yeah, exactly. And she has that he, now. And Deng's power was based on really the opposite of what Xi's power is, is based on. Hmm. So is that important? Absolutely. Where will that go? That is a much more difficult question to answer. A few things, and now we come to Taiwan seem clear to me. One is that just as Putin had a bee in his bonnet mm -hmm. on Ukraine, Xi has a bee in his bonnet about Taiwan. Mm. He believes that in order to basically have the credibility and legitimacy as one of the supreme Chinese leaders, that during the next five years, he has to bring about a major change in the relationship with Taiwan and has to make it clear to the world and to the Chinese population that yes, China, uh, Taiwan is, as had, by the way, was admitted by Nixon a long time ago, is a part of China and China is in charge there. Now, what does that mean? Does that necessarily mean an invasion? Not necessarily. Hmm. Does it mean that the, the current state of affairs can continue? Definitely, it means it can't. Yeah. So, <laughs> what, what direction will it go? There are three options. Only three? Probably more, <laughs> but let's, let's simplify it. One option is that the elite in Taiwan, which is not Taiwanese, but Chinese, mm -hmm. in the end will find a way to accommodate this Chinese control to the benefit of China, but also to the benefit of themselves. Yeah, the Chinese are famously pragmatic. One right. cannot underestimate So. Them. I certainly wouldn't rule out that option. <laughs> Accommodation. Option one. Win-win. In which case, there is no need for the United States to intervene except to accelerate what it has already begun. Mm -hmm. And that's what you were referring to earlier with speeding up uh, things to kind of make sure that there's enough semiconductor manufacturing capacity in the US. Mm -hmm. There's little doubt in my mind that that, even though the CHIPS Act is just, you know, kind of a really a small amount of money, mm -hmm. big scheme of things, there's little doubt in my mind that that will happen and mm -hmm. it will go much faster than we imagine. Uh, so that's one. The second option is basically an invasion. Uh, and then the question is, uh, what will happen? Mm -hmm. Again, uh, it's not at all clear that an invasion would not be successful, and it's not at all clear that the U.S. will intervene with troops and with uh, aircraft and basically ships mm. uh, from aircraft carriers to uh, submarines. If you ask me, I'll 
give you my bet on this, but, but what is your not, bet on it? My my bet is that in the end the U.S. will not. In the uh, in the end the U.S. will provide military assistance, but not put either troops on the ground or um, aircraft in the air or ships uh, at risk in the uh, in, in the Taiwan Strait. It'll follow the Ukraine policy. It'll arm the Taiwanese, but not quite as strongly as in Ukraine. It's my bet. Understood. The third option, or the third possibility, mm. hardly an option, a possibility, is... Scenario. Uh, mm. Scenario. Yeah. Is really the scenario of all-out war, where a combination of the United States, Japan, Korea, uh, Australia, Europe, all will intervene in a dramatic way that is as least as big as in Ukraine uh, and probably bigger, hmm. um, which would be unacceptable to China. We, it's pretty clear, and they have made it pretty clear, it would be unacceptable to China. And while I'm not a military strategist or a military expert, mm -hmm. my guess would be that's doomed to fail. In terms of what the Chinese would like most, and frankly, I would like to see most, it is the first option followed by the second option, followed by the third option, which I think would be disastrous for the world. All right.